When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICAL. By GoToMeeting with HD Faces, start hosting your own face-to-face meetings today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 2nd, 2014, the Go Ahead Search My OK Cupid Profile Edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate, and I have trickily relocated to Slate's New York office and our New York studio today, where I'm joined by Emily of House Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hello. You must be watching your some Game of Thrones. Are you guys Game of Thrones watchers? We are, although it gives me nightmares, to be honest. Yeah, Hannah doesn't watch. It's yucky. I hide my eyes, and it's still upsetting because there's so much sadism, and you can't really protect yourself against that fully. Yes. In D.C., alone, never lonely, is John Dickerson. John is gearing up for the worst night of the year in Washington, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Hello, John. Oh, it's true. It's true. Oof. That night. Have you all watched all the way through up to the latest of Game of Thrones? Yes. Yes, so have we, finally. Oh, you caught up. Yeah. What an accomplishment. It took a long time. On this week's show, no Game of Thrones, just the NBA drumming out racist Clippers owner Donald Sterling, and everyone is feeling pretty good about themselves for doing that. Should they feel so smug? Then an execution goes horribly awry in Oklahoma. Will this hasten the end of capital punishment in America? Then the Supreme Court asks whether cops can search your cell phone when they arrest you, your photos, your email, your bank statements, your love notes from John Dickerson, all those things, should they be allowed to search it. And we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. Before we get started, a reminder, Slate has launched Slate Plus, which is our brand new membership program. Slate Plus is not a paywall. Everything that's now free on Slate continues to be free. Instead, it's filled with delicious extras, particularly delicious if you are a podcast listener and a GabFest listener. If you join Slate Plus, you'll get an extra GabFest segment every week. This week, we're going to do something about contrarianism. Where is it okay to be contrarian? Why are we contrarian? Are we contrarian? What does contrarianism mean? We are also giving you our podcast ad-free if you're a Slate Plus member. Not just the GabFest, but also Hang Up and Listen and the Culture GabFest. You'll get discounts to tickets to all Slate events, including our live podcast. First crack at tickets to cocktail parties and post-show parties. 
We're going to do a monthly live stream of our taping, too, a video live stream, if you are a Slate Plus member and you want to watch that. And you'll also get lots of great stuff on Slate itself. Uh, No pagination on Slate. Everything will be a single page. You'll get a mug, too, and you can get an exclusive chat with Dear Prudence. So it's an incredible offer. You can do it for $5 a month or for $50 a year, and there's a free trial. So you should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. You can try it free today. Donald Sterling, the loathsome, cheapskate, racist, sleazy owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, was drummed out of the NBA this week and out of polite society when a young woman with whom he may or may not have been having an affair taped him saying unbelievably horrible racist things and then released the tapes to the media Let's listen to Sterling saying some of those horrible things. You were well, then if, if you don't feel, don't come to my games. Don't bring black people and don't come. Do you know that you have a whole team that's black that plays for you? you just Do I know? I support them and give them food and clothes and cars and houses. Who gives it to them? Does someone else give it to them? Do I know that I have? The NBA, which was facing a revolt by players and widespread popular outrage about this, fined Sterling, banned him from league, and declared it would use league bylaws, franchise laws, to try to expel him, force him to sell as the owner of the Clippers, for which he would make a gigantic profit, incidentally. So we're joined for this segment by Slate's Mike Pesca of Hang Up and Listen. Mike has been writing about Sterling, said some very interesting things. He's going to educate us about that, and we'll have a general discussion about it. Before we get started, Mike also has a new podcast that launches Monday, The Gist. It's going to be Slate's daily podcast. There's going to be interviews. It's going to be about the news, about culture, about sports, and also we'll get some great Mike monologuing on there, too. So please subscribe to The Gist starting on Monday, right? Yeah, Monday. For those of us who would listen to Mike Pesca read the phone book, it is going to be really thrilling because he's going to do more than read the phone book. That's the C segment on Wednesdays, actually. (laughs) You should try that and just see how it goes. If you can even find a phone book anymore. So I think everyone agrees that somehow this vocal personal racism, which is caught on tape, is different and more vivid than other forms of racism. But why is that so? Why is it that it took this form of disgusting behavior captured digitally to get Sterling out of the league and not all the other forms of racism which he's demonstrated over the years. Because you can't ignore it, because TMZ just pounds it and pounds it over and over again, because there were celebrities involved, because he's saying, I don't want to see you V with Magic Johnson, who everyone knows, with uh, Matt Kemp. And because the past racism is the sort of thing that was uncomfortable for the NBA owners, they never liked Donald Starling. You know, David Stern, the past commissioner, tried to fine him millions of dollars for things other than racism. But it's just so uncomfortable when you're dealing with one of your brethren, one of this club of 30, who says that black people attract vermin and says that they smell and won't That's rent to black people. That's from the people. housing discrimination suit and, that we all should have reacted to and a this few is, years And ago. this is the thing. Back in 2003 and 2006, when those suits were winding their ways through EEOC and they were eventually settled, and, you know, he hasn't disputed them, these were factual things that have been accurately attributed to him, there was nothing. There were crickets from the NBA. And it had been written about by reporters, but it was so 
much the kind of thing that you don't talk about, I guess, in the polite society within the NBA, that when Doc Rivers, who's an informed guy who's 52, who's the coach of the Clippers, whose house was burned down by racists, who knows what it's like to deal with racism in the world, he said in the beginning of this week that he didn't even know Donald Sterling's history of racism. He didn't even know that Donald Sterling had this, you know, particular knock against him, this well-documented knock. And so therefore, I think that a lot of what the NBA did is hypocritical, and it's also kind of an easy decision for them and a decision where you're talking about Game of Thrones. I was making this analogy. You know, if Adam Silver were a Lannister, we'd have found out that this was the perfect opportunity, that maybe he didn't orchestrate it, but he got all his owners in a row. It was the perfect way to rid themselves. Yeah, it was a perfect way to rid themselves of a wart they always wanted to rid themselves of. So we're congratulating Silver for braveness, but in fact, it was a really expedient decision. Decision that he so, made. So John Dickerson, Silver uh, Sterling, excuse me, is a very old man, and obviously he's a billionaire, and so people never tell billionaires to stop Fuck saying off. the stupid things that they're saying. But what forms of revolting personal beliefs and expressions of personal beliefs are still permitted? How far would he have been allowed to go and still would be allowed in polite society? He clearly crossed over that line. But I think had someone said similar things about gay people and been caught on tape doing that, probably that would not be out of the league kind of offense, would it? This is kind of the central question is why and where is the line being drawn here? Because there is something. So he has his past history, and that's part of the problem, which is that he was a racist, you know, hiding in plain sight, and they hadn't done anything about it, which is egg on their, the NBA's face. Now, there is a tricky thing, though, is that when the Justice Department nails him for 2.5 or 6 million dollars for being a slumlord who's a racist. I don't know about the NBA bylaws and the ownership bylaws, but would they have had the same standing to kick him out? They arguably don't have actual legal standing now to kick him out. Right. I think they could have done that then if they had chosen to. It's all pretty trumped up at that point. Right. No, no. Now they just have the popular support. They have the, so much public yeah. outrage that they're going to be able to do it, whereas then the public didn't care. One of the questions for me here is What is it about what he said that is, I mean, it's obviously repugnant, but I think there is something particularly repugnant about the way he said it, maybe the length of the the audio tape. But don't you think she was baiting him along yeah, the way? It's yeah, it's totally yeah, 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 yeah. I understand, but that's tra- a separate he was, question. He, 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 they framed a guilty man. Right, but that right. is a separate question. Right. I was and answering I think maybe your they question. they railroaded a guilty man, too. I was answering your question, which is, what is it about the line he crossed? Let's say he had did what Marge Schott did. She used some very off-color you know, words, but I can't remember whether it was this long, drawn-out, horrible, repetitive kind of touching every possible button kind of racism. I'm just wondering whether there's something about the way he said it and the fact that it was an audio tape, the fact that it had the play that it did that led to the massive, basically they threw the book at him as much as they could. Also, it's the fact that most of the NBA is played by black people. And so, you know, you were asking, could he have made some really anti-gay remarks? Well, his team isn't, as far as we know, filled with gay people. So it's just this different world that he was operating in, in which his players and players on other teams, I mean, I think that the NBA was facing a revolt from the people who, in fact, are the heart of the NBA. And there was something about that that made it feel incredibly important to respond urgently. So, Emily, here's a question for you. Let's say it was known that Donald Sterling is a racist, which it was to anyone who really wanted to know, but this tape didn't exist. 
even though it, you know people said God no he says story. right there's no story but it's so disturbing the idea that your private conversations with a an ostensible loved one taped without your taped consent, without your consent by someone who's clearly trying to get you to hang yourself it could could be so damaging to you and not, we're not talking about like in a in a court of law yet we're just talking about in the public opinion and in the taking of his private property. You know, how are we supposed to think about that? I mean, I think it is disturbing. And that was part of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's objection to what the NBA was doing, was exactly that. And I think, I mean, that piece that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one wants to call him by his first name, but why would I ever get to do that? That really resonated with me because he wasn't in any way letting Sterling off the hook. He was, I think, arguing that there is a kind of moment of moral self-righteousness, this groundswell of rage that we all participate in. Because what Sterling said was so beyond the pale. Not to mention crazy. I mean, who could object to being on Instagram with Magic Johnson? There was something While at the same time it. telling your mistress, and it's okay if you sleep with him, which is something that he said. Sleep right. with him if you want, but don't take a picture with him. Right. I, I just want to go back to one thing. Now, it is true that his past racism was odious, but there is a little bit of a difference about bouncing him then and bouncing him now. They could claim now that the kerfuffle actually caused material damage to, to the, the other NBA. owners. Right. And right. they could also say that, you know, because of this maelstrom, all these sponsors pulled out, and that's why we're bouncing him from the league. But, of course, why was there no kerfuffle back 12 years ago? It's because the NBA owners didn't want one. And I think that what Silver should have done, he is getting so much credit for, I think it's a kind of this paternalistic thing and taking away everyone else's problems so that the Warriors didn't have to go through with their planned walk-off, which would have been amazing, so that people didn't really have to protest to the ex- beyond the extent that they wore black socks or, you know, did inside-out jerseys. I would have liked a real assessment, and we know that a league can do this. You know, this is what the NFL did with the Dolphins, and they, and, you know, I think, Emily, you call that one of the best bullying um, investigations ever. ever. And so I would like the NBA to have done a little soul-searching and to say, you know, we're not to be left off the hook. We should go back and see why we allowed this to happen. And also, longitudinally, Major League Baseball should maybe look at its... uh, Houston Astros owner. I'm not saying that Jim Crane is any sort of the racist that Donald Sterling is. I'm just but, saying that he had the same sort of EEOC okay, filings. But, all right, Mike. Yeah. So you you wrote about this a yeah. bit this week. People are racist, and some people are publicly racist, and that's stupid. But it's not a crime to be publicly racist. Why should it be possible for this league to take the private property right. of Donald Sterling? simply because he is an odious person who has brought ill repute onto the league. But it's he owns this team. Why shouldn't it? He continued yeah. on this team and people will refuse to play for him. He won't get any sponsors. People won't show up in the arena. He will suffer that way. Why is it that he's going to to have something taken away in yeah. a way that only government traditionally the, can do the, this. The answer is that they're not taking it away. He'll be compensated for it at a multiple. I mean, he bought the team for $12 million. He's going to sell it for definitely a half a billion and maybe more. So they're not taking it away, but also it's a franchisee situation. When the other franchisees say, hey, or a co-op, right? Hey, you're damaging our property because no one's patronizing the Clippers. When the, we book the Clippers into our arena, we're having a, our attendance goes down or whatever, even if the perception of this, that's why. I mean, Legally speaking, that's an open and shut case as far as I understand it, though there is a question about in the NBA's up until now secret constitution. By the way, 
What's up with that? Yeah, <laughs> from a legal <laughs> standpoint, the NBA is kind of a big public enterprise. All right, there's secret constitution. Can the commissioner ask for his ouster? I know that they have so many clauses about gambling and so many clauses about not having the correct finances. And then there's this like one little clause which says, or anything else. So why even have all this specific stuff about gambling that allows for an owner to be bounced if you also have the or anything else clause? I don't know. It's a badly written contract. How shape. can you? No, it's a secret constitution. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's why it was kept secret all these years. So, John, what do, you, what do you make of the kind of great pleasure that everyone's taking in their moral outrage about this? On the one hand, I think it's phony. As we've been discussing, you know, it's a lot harder to face the pernicious racism that's kind of marbleized through our culture. It's a lot easier to take somebody who's an obvious cretin and who sort of looks the part. And there were so many other elements of this tape that are just disgusting. And also this came on the heels of the Clive and Bundy tape, which is equally, if not more, disgusting. Right. And so it's just sort of everybody gets to check their moral outrage box easily and kind of feel good about themselves, you know, and then just kind of move on. I don't like that. Having said that, though, and I'll throw this question out to the rest of you, Change does happen in spasms. And so if that sort of hypocrisy that I was just trying to talk about is there, you can also imagine that this being a big conflagration in which everybody gets to have their moment of outrage does send some signals, does increase the penalty for being even a quiet racist, you know, and that's a good thing. But Monty Jones gave the greatest riff on this possible about the kind of people who are suddenly up on their soapbox. So everybody should just go listen to that. I think that there are good things that can still come of this, even though there is a lot of soapbox jumping. I'll just quickly say, you know, you brought up anti-homosexual sentiment. If nothing else, it shows that there's absolutely no countenancing for racism. And if you take that as a given and then you compare it to if uh, the owner of the Orlando Magic, who has been outspokenly against gay marriage and so forth, I mean, there wouldn't be that. So just if you want to judge the issue, I mean, racism is so beyond the pale to every part of society. You know, having a gay bashing orientation is not there yet, you know, so that's a difference. Wait, although can we just footnote the kind of blatant personal racism that Sterling was showing us is beyond the pale, whereas institutional racism is cartoon villains. every day. Cartoon, cartoon villains villain are great. We We're going to stamp out cartoon what, villainry. What, uh, two final things I want to touch on, one totally non-germane, but the first is the, the kind of digital permanence. It's the audio... I guess it's not digital. It's, it's, the, it's the an audio. Anthony Weiner moment. You can't deny it. It you changes can't. everything because it's right there in front of your face. But I, I guess I'm more the audio. There's this intimacy of hearing voices, as we know from doing podcasts and radio, that is quite different. And I think when you think back to the Mitt Romney 47%, which was a video which wasn't a video. That was an audio was tape. An audio. It was an audio true. tape. And it is that that kind of sense of someone's voice that is so powerful that matters so much more than even, I mean, imagine if it had been a video of Sterling, there was no audio of his voice, but it was him just mouthing it like this in yeah. someone else's voice. You just, worked. it wouldn't have worked. Or even Riley Cooper, the Eagles player who was shouting the N-word as security guard, that didn't cause as much consternation. Right. I think it's the audio and the fact that it was presented to us in transcript form, the original TMZ and Deadspin. So you had to read it, you had to listen to it. It sort of gets absorbed into your consciousness In all fairness to Riley Cooper, he is a player, not an owner. I also think there's just this 
inherent importance of these black players playing for a man who is so spurning who they are. There's just something deeply offensive about Also, he that. was contemplative. He'd obviously given this a lot of thought. It wasn't simply sort of the visceral, some sort of thing when you're drunk and it, you know, there's something deep in you that causes you to do something vile. And the length, the yeah. nine minute yes. length of the tape means we hear all these weird in and out. So, all right. So one final question for any of you guys. So this is a 30-year-old mistress. He's in his 80s. Is that wrong? Yes. That is wrong? It's just, Gross. or is it, is it revolting or is it wrong? Oh, Huh. An interesting distinction. I guess I, it's only revolting. I would go as far as to say that there are basically no relationships with that age difference that's just based on pure love, whatever pure love is. Like, there, it has to be transactional. This is all tied up to the sex part of it. And if you read The Smoking Gun, has transcripts about past mistresses. And there's one, I mean, it's so wonderfully comic, though disgusting, where he's going on and on about the sexual favors that he's gotten from this one mistress, who he considers trash, but he can't stop talking in court about her sexual favors and then you see the court officer in the transcript say um the question was is that your signature on this document <laughs> <laughs> well i mean she was a kept woman in the way that we wrote about those french high class call girls from the was it the 18th century that was essentially their role to be the kind of constant where it was purely transactional, but it wasn't just a one-night stand. You know what I just thought of? She identified herself as the archivist within his organization. And what was her name? Riel Hunter? Yeah. She was also the archivist. Huh? Oh, watch you need the one archivist. more. What's the archivist? <laughs> one more Mike the... was going to be your <laughs> That's archivist. so great. There was some woman who was actually doing some of that at Slate. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know. All right. I uh, think we need to end this segment um, right here. Mike Pesca. Your new show is The Gist. Come back anytime and we will listen. The Gist launches Monday, May 5th on Slate's podcast, World. Find it on iTunes. Find it on Slate. Find it everywhere. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Harry's.com, which provides high-quality razor blades shipped right to your door at a much lower price than its competitors like Gillette. They have blades. They've got handles. They've got cream. These things are beautifully designed, German-engineered. You should ask yourself, have you ever seen a German with an unsightly stubble? I have not. It helps you avoid the nightmare of buying razors. They're locked up in a case. They have too few blades, too many blades. They're unspeakably expensive. They don't fit on the handle you have. I have this beard, and I need to kind of trim it around the edges a lot. And it's become an acute, I have an acute razor blade crisis because I'm down to a single blade. And I've been using it over and over again because it's been such a pain to buy them. So now I'm out of the woods, order en route right to my door. So you can go to harrys.com and use our promo code POLITICAL and save $5 off your first purchase of these high-quality German-engineered blades for half the price of the competitor's blades. So go to harrys.com, use the promo code POLITICAL to save. On Tuesday night, Clayton Lockett, who in 1999 committed a truly horrific torture and murder of a young woman, was executed in Oklahoma. The execution was a disaster. It followed weeks of legal maneuvering about Oklahoma's untested method of lethal injection and Indeed, the execution went horribly awry. The first drug administered in a three-drug cocktail designed to render Lockett unconscious, sort of rendered him unconscious, didn't really render him unconscious. His vein exploded. He was declared unconscious by the physician attending, but then turned out not to be unconscious and with writhing and speaking. Ultimately, the Oklahoma prison authorities closed the window, so we don't know exactly what happened in the execution chamber, although Lockett did die they say, of a heart attack. The Lockett execution highlighted all the problems, yet more problems, with the machinery of death 
in particular, now that we have lethal injection in all but, I guess, one of the states that executes people, there's no longer a, a steady supply or even any kind of supply of the drugs most commonly used for lethal injections. Pharmaceutical companies have stopped making them or have stopped selling them to the states that want to use them. There are protocols that are being developed for lethal injections with drugs that haven't really been used, at least for this purpose. They're being administered by people who may not be super qualified to give them. Doctors refuse to participate. The AMA has told doctors that it's unethical to participate in execution. And meanwhile, we're at a time when support for the death penalty generally in America is declining. So, John, let's start with a question about why overall is death penalty support in decline before we get to the locket question in particular? I mean, it's in decline relative to where it was. I don't I actually haven't uh, let everyone down. I haven't looked at the polling on it. But I mean, I guess the first answer I would give is that people who are sentenced to death it's being discovered that they are totally innocent. You've had Emily gave you a thumbs up. Emily, thumbs up. Let's turn. Let Emily do this. Emily. No, no, he's Emily. doing great now. Yes, you're right. It's because we have come to doubt whether the states can actually administer the system fairly. And that's why there have been all these moratoriums, because right. we're worried that we might be killing innocent people or people who haven't had all their rights fully aired. And Illinois, you know, was basically the poster child state for that. Yes. And also, I think there's been additional scholarship about the costs, which has bolstered the case that it's more expensive because of the appeals and so forth. Is that true, Emily? Yeah. The average death sentence takes 15 years to be carried out. And the cost of being as sure as possible that you're actually executing someone who's guilty means that there's a whole industry of death penalty defense lawyers and prosecutors and everyone scrutinizing these cases very closely, which is appropriate considering the outcome of execution, but it's also incredibly labor-intensive and time-consuming and expensive. And so the polling is basically that there's still significant majority support for the death penalty overall. It's like about 60 percent, right? But it's much lower than But it's lower than it's been. It's around 80 percent. Also, the country is less white, and white people support the death penalty a lot more than non-white people. Crime in general has gone down. So people, I think, have a less of a sense that there's an imminent crime threat that might make them as vengeful. Are there other reasons? Well, I think another thing that's really important to point out is that there's the death penalty in the abstract, and then there's actually executing people. And in the last two years, the only states that have actually executed anyone. But can we guess? Can we guess? Go ahead. Georgia, Florida, Texas. Florida and Texas. Oklahoma, Louisiana. Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, Georgia, Ohio has one, Missouri, Alabama, and Virginia. And in the last year, it's only Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, Missouri, and Ohio. So in fact, this is becoming more and more this particular regional phenomenon that is really, with the exception of Ohio, the South. And it's not even the whole South. So you can see the way in which the machinery of death has actually slowed to a halt on almost the whole rest of the country. But do you think it's going to go? Do you think it's gone? Going to disappear? I think it's gone. I mean, in a lot of states, we've had seven states abolish the death penalty in the recent period. And also California, which has a huge death row. They're not executing people. North Carolina has stopped executing people. There's a way in which state by state, the actual carrying out of executions is. Is is there a way? Let's say 43 states end up getting rid of the death penalty, but Texas still has it. Georgia still has it. Louisiana still has it. Oklahoma and Florida still have it. 
Is there any chance the Supreme Court says, you know what, the moral force, the states, like with, with gay marriage? That's well right. And what the Supreme Court and does therefore actually— And therefore it isn't, is no longer a humane punishment. It's now become— Yes. Even more than gay marriage, the whole judicial analysis of cruel and unusual punishment has to do with what's usual. And so in the cases in which the court has, abol- has stopped letting states execute people who are mentally ill, or actually I wish they would do that, who are mentally disabled or juveniles at the time their crime committed, all of those decisions are— are based on how many states still do this, and these are only outlier practices. So if you abolish the death penalty in most of the states, you would be inviting an, a cruel and unusual punishment challenge based on the numbers alone. And I think you could even bring that challenge based on executions actually being carried out if you could show a pattern over years. Could you, on the cruel and unusual punishment front, what if you went back to the guillotine? So that wouldn't be you know, Which, they should. It Which be, maybe they should. I mean, honestly, but I'm saying if you did that, would that protect you against cruel and unusual punishment claims or? Would there be other ways in which you could say it's cruel and unusual because of its disproportionate? Or well, whatever? now I think we're talking about cruel instead of usual. So okay. cruel is the subject of the day because what Oklahoma did was so clearly cruel. And that's what's horrifying all of us. I unfortunately think there's a clear answer to cruel. And it's the one you just gave, which is, well, if they can't do lethal injection right anymore, bring back. Why the don't chair. they? What, I why don't they, they bring may. back like firing squads or the guillotine, which do seem to be. We backed away from forms of execution which are bloody and horrifying to see. And from the point of view of the audience, it is much more comforting to watch someone in a proper lethal injection who appears to go to sleep. Now, it was really clear this week that watching a botched lethal injection is absolutely terrible. So maybe they will go back to firing squads. And also, they seem to have created lethal injection for aesthetic reasons. Basically, it was that they didn't want... As you say, they didn't want to show bloodiness. But most of the states where they're doing carrying out executions, there isn't there's a lot of support for it. It doesn't seem like the aestheticness matters that much if you're a Georgia prosecutor. I think that's right. You know, a lot of the there were two reactions yesterday. There was horror and there was let this man suffer. You know, he had committed a very terrible crime and his suffering can never amount to the same as the victim. So there's an old testament quality to the reaction here. You know, One more thing about the Supreme Court and cruel and unusual punishment. I think the best possible outcome is that, I mean, I don't mean in any way to justify what happened in Oklahoma, but if there's a silver lining here, it's that opposition to the death penalty grows state by state and the states stop this practice on their own. It's not the Supreme Court stepping in because when they basically did that for a few years in the 1960s, that was when we saw support for the death penalty go through the roof. We don't want the Supreme Court to step in yet. We want this to be a kind of gradual process, I think. Do you guys support the death penalty? So I'm not an abolitionist. I can imagine criminals who I think should be executed, but I would want to do it in so much of a unusual few and far between way than we do it. And I honestly, having what I know about the way um, the United States has actually administered the death penalty makes me think there's no way it can be racially fair and really prevent against the execution of innocent people. So I'm opposed to our death penalty. John? I will be happy to talk about the political positions of our presidential candidates, um, which is if you look at Obama, who supports the death penalty, and Clinton, who supports the death penalty, And remember back during the last presidential primary campaign when a questioner during one of the debates said to Rick Perry, Texas has killed more prisoners than any other state. And the audience erupted into applause. There's not really, as Emily was saying, there's the federal role here is there isn't one. But it used to be. Well, there is a federal death penalty. Well, that's true. Who was the last person? 
Well, it's Jokar Chanayev, the Boston Marathon bomber. He's being is prosecuted being, under that. I mean, he'll probably feel guilty to right. a life sentence. But was yeah. McVeigh the last one? Yes. Okay. But you won't get... When Bill Clinton was for the death penalty, it was his way of sort of resisting the attacks of Republicans on on Democrats as being weak on crime. And I think that... I guess my point is I don't see Hillary Clinton changing her position on the death penalty so that while the public may be moving in one direction, I think politically they're they're still behind it. So one thing I would say is I have no brief either way for the death penalty. I guess I'm sort of near where you are in the position as a position, Emily, which is probably it should be rarer. And as it's carried out, it's not doing so well. That said, it would not be top three, top five of issues that I would deal with to reform American justice. It right. seems to me like so far down the list, when you think about what's ahead of it, when you think about, you know, prosecutorial overzealousness, when you think about solitary confinement, when you think about... Except that if we didn't have the death penalty and we took all of the legal and social and political resources that now get poured into each of these cases and we started to take on those other ills, we could really get somewhere. I mean, one of the things that's upsetting to me... Yeah, I I don't want to spend time and energy on the death penalty either. You can't. So you can't take away all the resources that go into litigating these cases because the possibility of executing someone who is innocent is so horrifying. That is, we have a whole apparatus built on the idea of death is different. If there was no more death, we could take that concentration of resources and start scrutinizing all the other cases. No, why don't we just, why don't we instead sort of say, well, you know what, there's going to be some mess ups in the death penalty and people are going to be killed in cruel and unusual ways. And instead... I would take that. I would take that imperfection. You would, but most I would people take would that. not. The take, whole you would take it would if you not. knew that if you knew that lots of dr- you know nonviolent drug offenders were not going to prison. If you knew that felons, the stigmatization of felons wasn't wouldn't be so bad. If you knew that solitary confinement, which to me is a much greater form of torture than anything than the death penalty, honestly, I just it, don't see the it, way that we get that there. Be, whether I would take the bargain or not, it's totally antithetical to how our whole legal system operates. But you're making it. It sounds like David, you're you're making a claim for the le- uh, sort of a utility claim for people who come at this from the left, which is stop spending all your money on these yeah, one or two cases, exactly. spend it on the many, many, many more cases that you could actually exactly. affect. Yeah, but they and, won't. And well, they but, they, but, but Emily, that assumes that, that every dollar that's being spent on the death penalty, that every death penalty litigator is just waiting to be fired from their job so that they can bring solitary confinement cases. No, no. I don't think so. They, people, These are glory cases in some sense. People, death penalty attorneys have a hero rescue complex, which I admire. It's great. But they're not necessarily going to carry that over to oh, I think a lot of them would, but I also think you're missing the fact that in the law is enshrined this idea that death is different, and that gives people who are on death row more appeals, more money to have lawyers. They are guaranteed representation in a way that pulls resources in their direction. And as long as we have that, we are going to have this skewing toward preventing unfair and, well, you know, if not, you even at, if we don't if you, Well, take, take, look in Illinois. Has Illinois, is Illinois now a paradise on earth for prisoners because it no longer has the death penalty? Like they're now, there's no solitary confinement. You know, all ex-felons are getting jobs left and right. I'm sure that's not true. I don't know about true. Illinois' criminal justice system. Or places that have no death penalty at all. Is, uh, no, that, is I, that great to be a, a prisoner in one of those places? And it's not great, but it's probably better. I mean, in fact, the states with the worst criminal justice systems 
Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma. These are places where it is, I mean, especially the one state that's not on this list, which is sort of surprising, is Mississippi, which always comes up as having a really dreadful criminal justice system. But yeah, I actually think there is an overlap. And maybe this isn't the only reason for it, but it is all connected. I kind of feel like this death penalty in this particular horrible, horrible episode in particular is rather like the Sterling case, which it allows people to engage in a form of easy moral superiority and sort of say, look how terrible this is. It's awful. Really have to get rid of it. And to avert your eyes from the greater crimes that are being committed in your name. That's entirely true. It is also true that it's possible that this moment will help push down support for the death penalty in the way that would lead to real reform. Do you guys think, John, do you think that there will be less death penalty, less capital punishment in the United States following this? Not as a part of this necessarily, but in the glacial movement, there will be fewer executions in 10 years than there are now. Do you think so, Emily? Yes, I do. GabFest is sponsored this week by GoToMeeting by Citrix. Meetings are essential to the way we work. They're an opportunity to share ideas, to problem solve. But if you are spread out in different locations, as we are today, coming together can be an impossible task because John Dickerson's in Washington, Emily's in New York. I'm in New York. Unless you use GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix, it's a powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online from anywhere at any time. It's easy. You sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device, and you can launch your first meeting in seconds. And no matter where you are, you'll be instantly connected to your team. And it's not just sort of looking at each other. You're going to share your screen to collaborate on documents, spreadsheets, and presentations in real time. You can turn on your webcams to see each other face-to-face in HD video. So it's just like meeting in person, even when you're miles apart. GoToMeeting will save you and your organization time and money and make you more productive. So start hosting your own face-to-face meetings today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Supreme Court heard oral argument this week in a pair of cases that could radically change what information police can gather when they arrest you. In two cases, cops used information gathered off cell phones to connect arrestees, arrestees? How do you say people who are arrested? I just say people who are arrested. People who are arrested to criminal activity and increase the punishment that was ultimately meted out to them. The question before the Supreme Court was, or is, I suppose, since they haven't issued a ruling yet, do cops need a warrant to search your phone and to search all the things in it, the email, bank statements, okay, Cupid profile, as they would if they were seeking to search your house? Or is the phone just like your wallet or anything else incidental on you? that cops have been traditionally allowed to search under what doctrine? And what's the name of the doctrine which allows That them? would be the Fourth Amendment. What is it a reasonable search and seizure? And once you have probable cause to arrest someone, what do you get to also search? So this is an Emily Bazelon special. Emily, just lead us somewhere. I mean, I have questions, but, oh, but good. Go, you go ahead. Have questions. Well, I want to give the argument for the cops it's due, which is that the rule until now has been that if something is on your person or if it can be seen visibly in your car and you're arrested driving, the police can search everything they can see, everything that's on you. And the reason for that is that the police are protecting their own safety. What if you have a gun in your pocket or even just like a needle in your wallet, I guess? And also they're preventing the destruction of evidence. Now, with phones, it turns out that the destruction of evidence question is actually maybe what this whole case should turn on because the police are saying that they'll get into an arms race with criminals if they're not allowed to search these phones without a warrant because if they can't search right away every criminal will program his phone to automatically wipe the data as soon as it's 
you know, in the hands of the police. The other side says, oh, come on, there are ways around this. Justice Sotomayor asked a question, well, can't you just put the um, phone into the airplane setting and it'll all be fine? It's hard to know how the technology is going to change and in a way that would affect this debate. And that makes the court, the court hates this. The court does not like to seem bumbling and idiotic about technology, even though Justice Breyer did say he didn't know whether his own phone was an iPhone because he can't figure out the password is, which was like, as Dahlia said, his old man moment at argument. So I think they're drawn to a kind of middle ground here, which is they tossed around a couple ideas. So maybe the cops can only search your cell phone if they can only look for evidence that's connected to the crime you're being arrested for. And that would address the problem that we have 12 million people being arrested every year in the United States, mostly for minor crimes. Most of them aren't convicted. But as we all know, every piece of data that's important to us lives on our phone. So there's something incommensurate there. Another idea would be to say, okay, they can take your phone without a warrant if you're arrested for a serious crime, but not a little thing. I kind of am drawn to those middle grounds myself. I I feel like I can see why there are instances in which you would not want to wait for a warrant, although most of the time I just am really suspicious of the idea of increasing any kind of warrantless searching power. So, John, it kind of seems like that they definitely are not going to go to either extreme, either the extreme where they say you can search and look for anything on anyone who you've arrested's phone. You can look at their bank statements even if you've arrested them for jaywalking. They won't go to that extreme nor will they go to the extreme which says it's like your house. You absolutely have to get a warrant before you are allowed to enter it. This is too personal and precious. So do you sense that they're going to fall in that middle ground the way Emily does? Yeah, yeah. And then they'll, and then we'll have huge debates about whatever. I mean, or I guess how would it then get worked out, Emily? Wouldn't they leave it up to the law no, enforcement? No, they would try to announce a rule. But, but I don't no, I mean, it's... would they announce the standard? I mean, is this st- so let's say they wanted the standard to be you take the phone and if you have probable cause to look in the this or that on the phone, the address book, because you know there's another gang member out there or you think that there's a drug buy about to happen so you get to search the email, that that it will be some standard that's connected to the thing for which they were originally arrested and for which there's an ongoing investigation, like, will they have to write those rules or will they make the guidelines broader than that? Well, I think you could have a standard that says you have to have probable cause to arrest someone, and then you can search their phone without a warrant, but you can only use the evidence that you find there for the crime to prosecute the crime for which they were arrested. That's one possibility, and everything else is off limits. So if you arrest someone for drunk driving and it turns out they were a murderer, you don't get to use the evidence from the phone that they killed someone. That's a possibility. Another possibility is we make the police get a warrant to search phones for people who are arrested for everything up to armed robbery. And then if you're in the realm of really serious crimes, that's different. The problem with that, of course, is then the police have an incentive to overcharge, which is not good. I come at this slightly differently. I understand, and I'm sure the justices will end up with one of these middle ground I don't be so sure, actually. It was not clear there were five votes for a middle ground. And this idea is a complete departure from everything they've ever said before about this. All right, well... My view on this is, is, this is sort of a pragmatic, the kind of world we live in view, is it is increasingly clear that any information that exists that people can get access to, they will get access to. Like if you have... Oh, no. So you're going to argue that it's okay to because of that? No, no I'm not. Please. Can you... Can I at least finish the sentence? I guess. I will at least finish the sentence. That it's very hard to maintain privacy in the world we're living in. Particularly, it's going to be hard. We're all going to have embedded chips soon with all our medical history on them. It's like, where, where's that? Is that going to be germane here? And 
I think we instead say, let's assume that all the information we're carrying with us and all the information that, that's on our phone and that's reachable through databases, let's assume that this is accessible to authorities. Because basically it exists, the authorities are going to have the technology to get at it, they will get at it. They're going to get at it. And so, what's the last so part of your the sentence? The last part of the sentence is work backwards from that. Like, knowing that the data is available, that they're going to get it, how do we draw limits around it? Not try to say they can't get to the data because they're going to find a way to get around the data. Say they're going to get to the but data. That we know that. that is just what this case is about. It's, it's what can you use the data for, right? Because the questions, the real questions that come up are you pick someone, the, the one of the, or two defendants in this case, one of them was caught making a drug sale, but then they found evidence right. that he'd shot, he had right. many more drugs in his house. No, you say that we know you're going to, we know cops that you're going to get this data. We know you're going to look at it. I guess what I'm saying is that trying to close the door isn't going to work. Assume the door is going to be open and then what are the consequences so they get to of look it? At everything. They are going to get to they look at everything. We, we have to, we have to c- assume only... they're going to look at everything. And oh, once... I find this really terrifying. You're living in Jeremy Bentham's panopticon if you Emily, let them look at Have you followed the NSA scandal? Yes, have you followed the NSA? NSA? Like they're, they're watching everything you're doing anyway. It's just a question of what agency is doing it and what, what they're using it for. So, But I don't want to assume that it's okay that the government has overreached so far. I want to imagine we can still dial that back. And I really don't want to let the local cops have run rampant in the same way that the federal agencies have done. See, I guess I think I don't want to have this. And maybe this is a giving in. Maybe it's, it's a surrendering. Total giving in. But it's, but it's sort of an accepting that it's, it's accepting the radical transparency of the world. Like Yo, an you, end of privacy. You know the end it, of privacy. It reflects the fact that you think of yourself as very law abiding and you have this idea you don't care if anyone looks at your information and that everyone else who is dutifully going around behaving themselves falls into that category too. No, so the only I don't, people who have to worry I mean, about this are not people that you identify you're, no, with. No, you're, you're, I certainly, you're right that I do think of myself that way. That is, that's a correct characterization of, of the plot psychology, whether it's true or not. But <laughs> I don't think that everyone's that way. I know that people have secrets and they've done terrible things and that they're leading double lives and that they're sinning and committing crimes. So why don't you worry crimes. more about protecting dissidents? Because that's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who rebel and who the government has a reason to watch and whether we want those people to have more freedom of movement and thought and communication or less. I'm not saying that I don't want them to be able to You're be dissident. You're giving up and I'm saying, saying it's too that, late to I'm even saying try. that it's very hard to imagine that that's protectable, and therefore let's try to set up mechanisms that minimize the bad consequences of it, rather than try to prevent it from happening. Such as what? What are you even talking about? I haven't gotten to that part yet. Well, I would like to know because once they're allowed to look at everything, they are going to sometimes abuse the looking at it. There's no way to stop that. They are going to abuse it. That's right. So you and we just like build that in as the cost of error, and then you know, then you have J. Edgar Hoover looking at whether Martin Luther King was sleeping with women who were not his wife. That's where this conversation always ends, and it's a deeply disturbing place. And we should prevent ourselves from getting there. John, where are you on this? I'm sure you're with Emily because you're for the zone of privacy. I am. I tend to be for the zone of privacy. So I guess I'm with Emily, as much as I'd love to come to your defense. No, you don't have to come to my defense. I, I'm for the zone of privacy. I just don't think the zone of privacy is going to be able to... No, I get what you're saying. No, because I, I want to come to your defense on utilitarian grounds, just because I think what you say is essentially, let's stop trying to, like... Oh, let's stop, stop the advance we can of ever water. Tame the NSA. Well, we can tame the NSA. It's our government. We can insist that they stop doing this. 
don't give up on the rest of us. It's just utterly lame of you, and you're going to be sorry someday. I someday will. you won't be so perfectly law-abiding, or someone you care about will be in trouble because of, course, of this, of and course. it's going to be rotten. Of course, of course. But I think of it as being sort of analogous to that, where people have all these terrible pictures of themselves on Facebook doing stupid stuff when they're young, and it's then they get older. It's not the same as that. That is not the same thing. And Those... I said analogous. Did I say it was the same? If I said it was the same... You can say that. I, I do want analogous. to rescue being allowed to make analogies with, without them having to be precisely the same as the thing you're I'm Fine, I'll grant to. you that point. What do you want to say? <laughs> I want to say the analogy is that, is that the solution to the Facebook problem is not don't post things on Facebook. The solution is that society's standards about how to punish people and how to judge the sins that are visible to the world has to change. Not but that it's we it's not changing. People will always be titillated by embarrassment. This is like some pie in the sky argument you like to make that is just utterly divorced from human nature. That's why I find it so useless. All right. So You're Emily, a just, sky pyre. Let's just give it. What do you think the justices are going to decide? I'm actually really not sure because when I was looking at the earlier cases about technology, like how the police can't put GPSs on your cars, I realized that the justification for them had nothing to do with the scenarios in these cases. Scalia wrote that decision and the one about no thermal imaging to look for marijuana in your house. And they're all about the home and the property of your car. And I'm not sure where how they get to some middle ground from their previous cases, but I do think that's the common sense place to end up. The GapFest is brought to you this week by the University of California. By awarding more than $1 billion in financial aid annually, the University of California makes a world-class education affordable to California's best and brightest. Creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. And now for today's Breakthrough. It raises forests, levels hilltops, and endangers wildlife, but this environmental threat is probably not even on your radar. New research from the University of California, Davis, suggests that the recent explosion of unlawful marijuana farms is a major concern for wildlife as growers divert water sources, poison animals, and increase erosion. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, what do you want to chat about today? Justice Scalia made a glaring mistake in a dissent this week in a case about the powers of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate pollution that crosses state borders. He completely got wrong the holding in the last big EPA case in a decision that he himself had written. And he got it wrong in a way that made his whole argument reverse on itself. It's not like a small error. It was the whole basis, essentially, for the main thrust of his dissent. So what do we make of this? There have been some murmurings about whether Justice Scalia is kind of mentally losing it. You know, he's 78 years old. I don't buy that for a second. This seems to me like one of the sharpest tacks still around. I do think, though... That clerk, do you think he is, like, like gutted the clerk and made a mistake? There is some clerk whose head is rolling all over the chambers. But I also think this suggests that Scalia is phoning it in, that you can try to blame your clerk as much as you want, but in the end, this kind of error is on you. And if you're really paying close attention to your job, you don't make huge bonehead. Like, yes, I make small mistakes all the time, but this is a huge mistake in a way that should matter. And the most shameful part of this whole thing to me is that the opinion was changed on the Supreme Court website with no notation that this is a correction. And that is terrible practice that journalists shouldn't do it. And certainly Supreme Court justices should not hide their mistakes that way. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? 
as a part of the um, L.A. Clippers story, there have been talk about all kinds of people who might be ready to buy the team. And one of the people who's been discussed is the founder, co-founder of the software company, Oracle, Larry Ellison. And in the Wall Street Journal, there was a story about him in which the following was said. So Ellison used to play basketball when he grew up in Chicago, and he's worth $40 billion. And it says the Oracle chief has had basketball courts on at least two of his yachts said Tom Eamon, who handles America Cup matters for Mr. Ellison. He said Mr. Ellison liked to relax by shooting hoops on these courts and has had someone in a powerboat following the yacht to retrieve balls that go overboard. Oh, my God. So my first thought of this was, of course, I could relate. Because when I was a kid, we used to play ping pong, and sometimes the ball would hit on the corner of the table and go under the couch. And so, and my second thought was that what a boon this must be to others who have basketball courts on their their yachts. I mean, even people who just have one yacht with one court, this is like best practices stuff for those poor guys who've just been buying more basketballs and giving up when they shot an air ball into the Pacific. Uh, but I think environmentally, it's probably a wash because for, you know, on the one hand, you don't have dolphins choking on a spalding when they mistake it for a conch fritter. But on the other hand, you have to burn all this fuel when your powerboat goes chasing after the ball. Do you think as a dollar investment, do you think it's better to have the speedboat or just to, you know, have 50 balls? Well, right. I mean, he's got It must huge, be better to have 50 balls. He owns, I think, the largest yachts on the planet. And so you could imagine that you would have a whole room full of just fresh, leathery smelling basketballs that you could go unless you just really were bad and you were such a bad player that you were just constantly littering the ocean with your basketballs. That is that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. He is he is so evil. I think in the in like a history book in like a hundred years, one of two things is possible. Either they will use this as an example of the current gilded age, or if it's like an apocalyptic future of the kind that Tom Perkins worries about. This will be the behavior that first gets you up against the wall when the revolution comes. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I want to chatter about an interview that Rolling Stone did with George R.R. R. Martin, the author of the Game of Thrones series. And it's a long interview, very thoughtful interview. I'm not a huge lover of the Game of Thrones books. I like them okay. I like the TV series a lot better. But Martin is a very smart guy, and there's, he's sort of comparing himself to Tolkien, and particularly on the question of ruling about how you actually rule a a country. And so one thing that Martin says, um, Tolkien can say that Aragorn, the the hero, one of the heroes of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for a hundred years and he was wise and good. But Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And what about all those orcs? By the end of the war, Sauron is gone, but all the orcs aren't gone. They're in the mountains. Did Aragorn pursue a policy of systematic genocide and kill them? Even the little baby orcs and their little orc cradles? And I love this. I love that that Martin has raised this problem because there's so many books which just assume, you know, you get good people, good people triumph at the end and therefore everything's fine. But evil leaves children and good people are not fully good and evil people are not fully evil. And this is a very subtle and it, get, it also gets to kind of the question that that we always have in American politics and particularly that movie, The Candidate. John, you've seen that movie, right? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at the end, it's like, what do we do now? We've won. Victory is easy. But ruling is actually hard. And I I like the way that Martin points out the weakness in the Tolkien books and and imagines, you know, what Aragorn's reign. And I I do like the question of of should you kill the little orcs and their orc cradles? Would you have killed the orcs and their orc cradles? You're a Tolkien guy. Yes. Yes, I would have. Really? No way. Yeah. It's not nature. It's not nature. It's nurture. No, it's nature with the orcs. It's, oh my god. The orcs it's all no it's not it's it's might be nurture with Gollum which is to say although Gollum does kill his poor friend to get the ring but you could argue the ring made him do it. But the orcs are just bad to the bone from the minute they're 
that, John? From the minute they're born, their bones are filled with black, soupy marrow. So what? Whose bones aren't filled with black, soupy marrow? I'm sure your bones are filled with black, soupy marrow. That is a terrible thing to say. The orcs are shy, enigmatic, and cruelly misunderstood. That's right. They're, they're, if only their poetry had been more accepted in elementary school, they wouldn't have grown inward and taken on a life of crime. I'm interested in the, the collective wisdom of GabFest listeners about whether orcs are, are intrinsically bad or whether they can be saved. Show page, GabFest at Slate.com. Twitter feed, at SlateGabFest. Email address, GabFest at Slate.com. Subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Slate Political GabFest. Leave a comment and a rating. Mike Volo produces the show. Rebecca Cohen interns for the show. Andy Bowers, executive, produces all Slate podcasts. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Listen to Mike Pesca's new podcast, The Gist, starting next Monday. Daily greatness in podcast form for Mike Pesca. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.